So we're in uh, ser- uh, week eight of uh, our series, just looking at 12 foundational values or principles for the church, okay? These are not just things I want you to know individually. These are things I want you to value and encourage each other in, okay? It's not just, oh, this is good for me and my personal walk with God. It is, but we need to think about things like this as a church, right? That when we we see each other weak in some of these areas, we can encourage because they're super important and foundational, right? This morning, we're going to talk about the Word of God, and it struck me this morning that this is probably out of order. This should have been week one because it's where we get all the other 11, right, from, is from Scripture. But alas, here we are in week eight, and so we're just going to do it today, all right? Um, So here's a statement about this that gets us started. It says, Jesus was the Word of God before time. The Bible is the infallible Word of God in print. The Bible is about Jesus. The Bible is approved and commended by Jesus. The Bible is authoritative because it is an expression of the authority of King Jesus. Now, I have talked about this topic many times before, so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to focus on basically two things that I've not really focused on before, that I'm concerned about, okay? Hopefully, this won't be a soapbox for me. It'll actually be legitimately, you know, relevant to you, because there's two areas of two topics regarding the Bible that are really under attack right now. They always have been, but they're especially under attack right now, in my perception, in not just in the world, but in the church, okay? And then I've tacked on sort of an appendix of supplemental info for those of you who have questions kind of about more kind of basic stuff regarding the scripture, okay? That's kind of what that's for. It gives me an excuse to not say things that I feel obligated to say, all right? That's what that is, all right? So we're going to talk about inerrancy or infallibility is the word I'm going to use, the infallibility of scripture and the unity of scripture, meaning how all of it fits together and why that's a big deal. And then we'll apply that to ourselves at the end, okay? So let me get some important facts out of the way up front. The Bible is not one book. It's a collection of books. Think of it like a library, okay? That's why just picking it up and reading it front to back isn't always the best way. You can do that, but people often get frustrated when they're new to Scripture and they just go out and they buy one. And they open it up, and they get just like every other book, you start at the beginning, and it kind of works well for a while, then you hit like Numbers and Leviticus, and you start start wondering what's going on, and you get confused because you don't have a context, and then you get discouraged and quit. So don't treat it like a normal book. It's a library, it's a collection of books, okay? 66 books in total. Um, 66 total books divided across Old and New Testaments. That testament word um, originally in English meant a covenant, which is how we use it. Um, Later became to mean like a document of proof, like testify. Um, That's not how we're using it. When we refer to the Old and New Testament, we mean covenants, okay? There are 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. It's divided up into six genres of ancient literature, law, history, wisdom and poetry, Prophecy, Gospels, and Letters, or Epistles. The Bible was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by over 40 different authors. This is why the fact that it all connects together is astounding. 40 different authors. 
from all walks of life. There were shepherds, farmers, tent makers, physicians, fishermen, priests, philosophers, and kings. Despite these differences in occupation and the span of years it took to write it, the Bible is an extremely cohesive and unified set of books. This is why it's a big deal when you try to destroy the fact that we should see all of it as one unit, okay? It was written over a period of 1,500 years, from around 1450 B.C., the time of Moses, to about 100 A.D., about 100 years after Jesus. The Bible was written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Koine Greek. Koine Greek is like the, the Greek of the people, not the highfalutin educated Greek. It's like, you know, the kind of Greek you'd hear around the car parts store, all right? Out on the farm, not in the classroom, okay? I like that. Gives me some hope. The entire New Testament as we know it today was canonized before year 375. The Old Testament had previously been canonized long before the advent of Christ. How the canon was formed is a huge topic, which we're not going to get into today. I've done it before. Okay, but there were a set of rules. One of the most important in my mind was that the whole church, the body of Christ, had to agree that it was Scripture. I know how hard it is to get a, the church to agree on anything. So when, when I read that, okay, we, the whole church kind of said, yeah, this is Scripture. This is from God. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit. I think, oh, that's a pretty big deal, right? And there were other rules, too, which I'm not going to go into. It's important, however, to acknowledge that no human being has the authority to grant authority to Scripture. We just recognize it, okay? We go, oh, this is Scripture, and it has authority over me. We don't give it. We don't all have to agree. Okay? So if I were to say this is not Scripture, you go, well, congratulations. You've just denied a truth. It's still true. Right? It's like me saying gravity isn't real. You would say, well, it still is, <laughs> whether you believe it or not. That's a whole other sermon about the absolute truth and what that is. Okay? So let's get into some Scriptures here. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Okay, so, so think way back, Old Testament times, Moses. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Okay, so what's he say? Just picture a timeline in your head, okay? Before we had scripture written down, we had prophets, and this is how God spoke to his people, because God is the God of words. How did he create everything? With words. He's a communicating, revelatory God. He wants to reveal himself to us. So he said, I'm going to talk to my people. And so he chose prophets, and he spoke through them to his people, right? And we go, oh, God spoke to us. Then they wrote that stuff down. 
right? They wrote down what the prophet said. They wrote down what the judges said. They wrote down what God's representative said, and they wrote down what God did. That's the other way God reveals himself. He does stuff. He speaks, and he does things. The acts of God. And we can get into this really funny to think about. It's very philosophical. But God's speech is also an act. We see that in creation, right? God doesn't just talk and the words hang out there. When God talks, it does things. So God's speech is an act in and of itself, but that's also another sermon for another day. I'm going to frustrate everyone saying that over and over again, right? So God spoke to his prophets. They wrote that down. That basically becomes the Old Testament. It's a record of what the prophet said and of what God did, okay? Then the New Testament, before the New Testament is written, what happened? Just picture your timeline, right? Jesus comes. And what does the author of Hebrews say about Jesus? Jesus is the Word. He's the perfect imprint of who God is. He's the perfect, complete, total revelation of who God is. All right? What the prophet said and what God did and what got written down, it was like it was good, but it's like we need, we need to understand God more, right? And what does God do? He sends Jesus as his perfect Word. Look at John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, capital W, that's Jesus, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He's basically backing up where this is what... The author of Hebrews means when he says, like when God says, how can I say perfectly who I am? He speaks Jesus, right? That's what he does. He gives us Jesus. He says, this is who I am. If you want to, Jesus said it himself. If you want to know the Father, you know me. If you know me, you know the Father, right? So the New Testament is the writing down of who Jesus is, what Jesus said, and what Jesus did, and what it all means, okay? All the New Testament is looking back at Jesus and working out the meaning and impact of what he did. And so the Old Testament looks ahead and yearns for Jesus, points to Jesus, tells us that Jesus, this is what the Father is like, this is what God is like, we need a Messiah, we need a King who won't fail us, all of these themes all the way through the Old Testament, looking ahead, aching for the day when Jesus would come. And then the New Testament is looking back going, He came! What does it all mean? Right? So this brings us to the idea of infallibility. Now that we have some idea of what the Scripture is. When talking about Scripture, we often um, use the word inerrancy, um, which means there's nothing wrong in it. There's no mistakes. I like the word infallibility better. It's stronger. Because infallibility implies that there can't be. Right? Inerrant is like, well, it could have, could have been an error, but there wasn't. Right? That's a good word. Infallibility is a little stronger, pushes the line a little bit farther, in my opinion, and it says there can't be. If it's the Word of God, there can't be any, it has to be infallible, because there's no fault in God, right? 
Simply saying, what we mean by that is that the Bible is true. That's very simplistic. But if you, if you want a quick definition of infallibility, the Bible is true. Now, the problem with that, I'm very aware, is that when we say the word true, there are a million different definitions of what the word true means. Right? You may experience that one in your life. Well, speak your truth. Error, 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 right? Truth is not just mine. It's either true or it's not true, right? So we, we throw that word, the Bible is true, out into our culture. It gets all twisted around and messed up because nobody wants to agree on what the word true means, okay? So what I mean by this is the Bible is always true, but it's not always maximally precise. There is a difference between being true and precise, okay? Let me give you some examples. In mathematics or science... Precision is super important. If I say 1 plus 1 equals 5 in my math class, because that's math, I'm, that's wrong. That's not true, right? Because in math, you must be precise. However, think about this. If you say, Ben, how old are you? I use this one because everyone jokes about my age, right? Someone says, how old are you? And I say 43. That's not very precise, is it? What I really mean is, I was 43 years old at my last birthday, which could have been almost a year ago, right? So I've, I'm within a year's precision of 43 years old. And we all accept this because no one really cares how many days old I am or how many hours old I am. We've all agreed that there's no need for that. But to my great annoyance, with little babies... We do months. Now, that would make sense to me before a year, right? I've had this argument so many times, and I always lose it, so don't, I'm not going to go all that. But before a year, it makes sense. Like, they're not a year old, so how do you say it? Well, month is good, all right? Then after a year, right? Exactly, right. And so the argument is, which I will accept, is that they're changing so much that it makes more sense. So apparently everyone's agreed that we should go with months, <laughs> right? Up until some point where it magically becomes years again, okay? Do you see that there's a difference between being true and being precise? They're not always the same thing. And we could think of a, a million examples of that. So we should say that the Scripture is true in what it claims, meaning if I say I'm 43 years old, you understand that I'm not claiming I'm 43 years old to the day or to the minute. You understand that my claim is that I'm 43 years old within the range of about a year, right? In fact, I would say I'm 43 even the day before my birthday. It's the least accurate statement I could make about my age is the day before my birthday because it's been almost a day shy of a year. I'm still going to say 43. You get the point. In fact, some people say I'm 40 years old for the fifth or sixth time. <clears throat> so the Bible is always true, but it's also written in ordinary language to ordinary people and does not attempt to carry the same precision as a technical manual. The problem is Typically, critics especially 
Treat it like it is. And the, the pushback to that is, well, the Bible's not making that claim. What claim is the Scripture making in that verse? And is that true or not true? It contains all the imprecise language of conversation and uses metaphors, hyperbole, that's an exaggeration for effect, parables, unrefined grammar, non-chronological narratives, imprecise quotations and images and symbols to convey truth. Okay? Just think about the parables of Jesus. If you treat those like they're literal people and not a story, you get very confused. Right? Sometimes Jesus confuses people on purpose and doesn't even explain what his parable means. Right? Talk about imprecise. Right? So all charges against infallibility of Scripture can be reduced to ignorance of what it's actually claiming. You're missing the point. Have you ever heard like a, a, one of those National Geographic documentaries or whatever with some guy talking about the Bible? He's some sort of expert and he's talking about how it's wrong in some way, you're going, when you're screaming at the TV, you don't even, you're so ignorant, you don't even understand what it's saying. How can you critique it? You don't even understand the point. Understand the point first, then critique it, right? That's what I mean. The Bible is completely true, perfectly true in all that it claims, okay? Augustine famously said, the New Testament is in the old, concealed, and the old is in the new, revealed. That's another way of saying the Old Testament looks ahead at Christ, and the New Testament looks back at where he came from. Let's talk about the unity of Scripture. This one, this one's frustrating, because what used to be kind of typical liberal theology has now become mainstream. There's a pastor, you may have heard of him, he's an enormous church named Andy Stanley. I mention his name only because I want you to recognize that this is mainstream evangelicalism right now. There was no one more mainstream evangelical than Andy Stanley, right? What he says is that we need to unhitch, quote, Christians need to unhitch the Old Testament from their faith. I'll give you another one if you don't believe me. He says, quote, The Ten Commandments have no authority over you, none. To be clear, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments, end quote. That's not some liberal dude hanging out in a liberal seminary teaching liberal students. That's a pastor, an evangelical pastor of one of the largest churches in America, the son of Charles Stanley. He's written a book dedicated to this topic. Instead of doing that, he argues that we should tether ourselves only to the New Testament. This is not unique to Andy Stanley. This has become a popular perspective on the Bible that the Old Testament, Testament is essentially tossed out or relegated to being irrelevant because it contains things that we are uncomfortable with. Because always, 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 Without fail, what accompanies that statement or statements like it, like we don't need the Old Testament or don't let it, don't really take it seriously, what always comes along with that is a need or a desire or an agenda for the church to fit in with the world or for, to make the world fit in with the church, to adjust our perspective on 
ethics, gender, sexuality, all these kinds of things that make them fit so everybody's comfortable. That's Andy Stanley's heart. He wants to get lots of people saved. And he's finding out that there's this friction. That new people come into his giant church and they start complaining about things they find in the Old Testament. And they get confused and frustrated. It can't mean that. It can't mean that. God is holy. He's a God of wrath. I thought God is love. Yeah, he is. But he's also holy, right? And they get frustrated and they start asking hard questions. And what's the answer? You either say, this is what God says, or you say, God didn't really say that. Who's that remind you of? Did God really say? There's nothing new under the sun. What's disturbing about this one for me is that it has, it has become mainstream just in the last year. He's opened the, Andy Stanley's opened that door. And now it's not just a fringe little church over here or a fringe big church over here. It's right smack dab in the center of the river. Unhitched the Old Testament from our Christianity. Our discomfort with the Old Testament scriptures is either because we're ignorant of how to understand them or because we want to be comfortable with our sin. We can solve the ignorance problem. Right? So I find myself, you know, blood boiling, watching interviews and debates with Andy Stanley for way too much time. Probably wasn't good for my blood pressure. Saying, just teach them, man. Don't, don't just section off the Old Testament and say, oh, don't, read, don't worry with that. Just read the New Testament all about Jesus. Well, then there's some stuff with Jesus you're going to have to ignore too. Like all the parts where he referenced the Old Testament. just teach them, right? Luke 24, while you're turning there, there are th over 300 Old Testament quotes in the New Testament. I found this cool graphic, but I couldn't use it because it's copyrighted. Somebody did a timeline. It's not really a timeline. It's a list of all the books of the Bible um, with a line. It's a, like a, a graphic, and it's got a line for the New Testament and in different colors, they just drew arches from uh, New Testament books to Old Testament books where they're quoted and referenced. And it's, it's, like, a, it's like a rainbow. The number of little, and then, then you add on just cross-references inside of books and from book to book, not across all the New Testament, but just cross-references where themes or words or scriptures are quoted between authors across the scripture, and it's like just a blob. It's so many lines. It's all interconnected. Luke 24, verse 13. You'll see how this connects to what we're talking about in a minute. So to give you some context here, this is after, right after Jesus has resurrected. He died, he's buried three days, and he resurrect, he's been resurrected, and he's appearing to different people, okay? 
That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were, these are some of his disciples. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, meaning the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I love this. Jesus just kind of, poof. He's, remember, he's supposed to be dead. He's supposed to be in a grave. And he's just showed up and he's walking along the road, but he miraculously keeps them from being able to recognize him because he's sneaky like that. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? What you guys talking about? And they stood still looking sad, <laughs> which is funny because this is Jesus. They're sad because Jesus is gone, right? I shouldn't be laughing at them being sad, but it's funny. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Have you been living under a rock? And he said to them, What things? He wants them to say it, right? He's being sneaky. And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen, even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they argued, urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. Also hilarious. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And then they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So notice Jesus taught them from the Old Testament scriptures, from the Old Testament. Jesus taught them, and what did he teach them? He said, this is about me. Hey, look, there I am. There's Jesus. There's Jesus. There's Jesus. Oh, let's go over. over. Oh, look here. Here he is again. Here he is again. Here he is again. Over and over and over again. Jesus used the Old Testament to teach about himself. 
please do not unhitch the Old Testament from your Christianity. Because what you lose is Jesus. I also want to point out here that having a teacher helped. Okay, so I don't want to come down hard on people who, are, who struggle with the Old Testament because of ignorance. Don't see ignorance as a bad word. It's not. Just because you don't understand, okay? Ask questions. Where is Jesus in this? Right? Put it to the test. Don't be afraid of that. Ask questions. Ask somebody to help you. Ask me to help you. Please don't throw me in that briar patch. I would love to hang out with anybody and talk about anything in the Bible, okay? It's fun. It's not a chore. But to simply say, let's discard it because it doesn't seem relevant, because it's old or confusing or contains things we don't like, is a horrible idea. This should be our goal, right? Is to have our hearts burn within us. That when we sit down with Scripture, that it reads us, we don't just read it. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says, For the Word of God is living and active, meaning it's not dead and it doesn't sit still. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, like a scalpel, right? It's not a blunt instrument. It's very precise in the way it reveals who you are to yourself. It reveals your sin. It reveals how God made you to give him glory, how you're unique, all these amazing things. It divides very carefully. And no creature is hidden from its sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Which goes to the idea that some, or many, just want to throw it out. This statement, I just want to read the last part. The Bible is authoritative because it is an expression of the authority of King Jesus. I love that. The Bible has authority over you and over me. Because it is an expression of the authority of Jesus. So here's your first lesson in how to understand the Bible. The Bible is Christocentric. It's about Jesus. If you want to understand it properly, you need to find Jesus in it. Sometimes that's easy, right? Because he's literally named there, right? Sometimes it's harder. Jesus claimed it right here in Luke 24, which I just read. I gave you some more scriptures in your notes. Luke 24, Jesus, when Jesus taught the Old Testament, he didn't just teach it as good moral tales, like Aesop's fables, right? Learn, learn a story, get a lesson, all right? He said, this is about me. It's not just about being a good moral person, right? The characters in the Bible, have you ever wondered why so many of them are just dunderheads? I don't know how you translate that into Spanish, dunderhead. Blockheaded, failures. There's not a lot of people to look up to. There are a few, but even the ones you look up to, like David, he's awesome. Wow, he also really blew it like in a serious, disqualifying way. 
right? As soon as you get real excited about a guy in the, in the, in the Bible, you, he disappoints you. That itself speaks of Jesus, doesn't it? The Bible is authoritative because it is an expression of Jesus. This puts us in a radically different position when we read the Bible than when we read any other book. You don't approach Scripture in a position over it in judgment, wondering if it fits in with how you currently see the world. You wouldn't approach Jesus that way, I hope. Put Jesus on trial, we'll decide if you fit in with 2019's ethics and morals and teachings, and those things that you teach that we find appropriate, we will accept. And those things that you don't, we will outright reject. You're so archaic. That's the attitude. And so we don't approach Scripture that way either. We come underneath it. And the things that offend us either means we don't understand it or we need to change. What does it say in Hebrews 4? All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. No creature is hidden from his sight. So we kneel in submission to it. Hi. How are you? She's having a good time. <laughs> Don't be embarrassed. She's, she's awesome. That's a, well, <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> She's drawn to something. She's coming here to tell me to chill out. Leave poor Andy Stanley alone. So we kneel in submission to what God says. We don't give it authority, as I said before. We recognize it. This changes how you handle things that you don't understand or that offend you, okay? Number one, not understanding a text will bother you if you see it as God's words and draw you into deeper study and reflection. It will cause you to ask other people, meet with your pastor or one of your elders or your small group leader, pray, seek, wonder, maybe for years and years and years while you wait to figure something out that you read that you don't understand. What you won't do when God says something to you that you don't understand, you won't just say, ah, I don't understand that. It'll do something in your soul that irritates you. Maybe for decades. What does that mean? I'm going to go ask. I'm going to read. I'm going to, I'm going to Google it. I'm going to dredge the bottom of the barrel to figure out what that means. We're going to have fun when we do the book of Revelation later this year. When you're offended, you read, what you read will, it will cause you to humbly draw near to God and ask Him to reveal what's wrong in you that needs to be corrected. So when you don't understand, it draws you in because it's God's words. It's the authority of Jesus. I want to know Him. I don't know, when He says something, I want to understand it. And if I don't understand it, I want to fix that. I'm obsessed with it. And when something offends you, like, ah, why did He say that? That makes me mad. It doesn't make you run away. It draws you in. It makes you more humble. God, do I need to change? Or do I just not understand this? 
What you don't do is abandon the scripture and say, ah, I don't, or I'm an idiot. What do I know? So since I've got a couple of minutes, I want to look at the supplemental information in there. Just to give you some ideas about how to find Jesus in the Old Testament, because I think people struggle here the most. How do we unearth Jesus in the Old Testament? Symbols, types, fulfillments, redemptions. Four things. Okay? Symbols, these are just things that point to Christ, like a sign on the side of the road. The temple, for example, is a symbol of the church with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. We've talked about that a lot in recent months. Moses and the bronze serpent on a pole in Numbers 21 is another kind of obvious example. Okay? Symbols. The book of Revelation is full of them. It's like chock full of symbols. That's why people struggle with it. Types. This is my favorite and probably the easiest to see. Okay? If you can say about a character in the Bible, Jesus is the true and better blank, whoever that person's name is, and you're dealing with a type of Christ. For example, Jesus is the true and better Isaac. Jesus also carried a tree up a hill to be willingly sacrificed in obedience to the Father. See that? Jesus is the true and better David, who was both priest and king for his people. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who though he was betrayed by his own, he went away to prepare a place of provision to then give to those who betrayed him. Jesus is the true and better Moses, for he rescued his people from captivity and led them to the land he had promised them. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who instead of despairing of his life because of the Father's mercy on his enemies, Jesus willingly laid down his life for his enemies in perfect obedience to the Father. See that? Those are just types. It's powerful, isn't it? I just heard another one the other day I'd never thought about. Jacob and Esau. Jacob tricks his dad by putting on the clothes of Esau to trick his dad into giving him his blessing, his inheritance. Esau was the favorite son. So what Jacob did was put on the clothes of the favorite son to get the favored son's blessing, his inheritance. Put on, what did Paul say in Colossians? Put on Christ. See how fun that is? We tend to miss the types of Christ because we are too easily see types of ourselves where we should. The classic is you are not David killing Goliath. That's Jesus. You're hiding in the ditch somewhere freaking out. Or God forbid you're one of the Philistines. Which what you're not is David. <laughs> right? Fulfillments. Jesus is the fulfillment of many prayers, prophecies, and failures in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, Genesis 3.15 are good examples. You can also see fulfillments in the temple worship ceremonies. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our once and for all great high priest and once and for all atoning sacrifice. So when you see stuff about the temple and the sacrifices, you read Leviticus, Jesus is all over it. And most people think that's the most boring book in the Bible. Until... You start going, Jesus did that. You get excited. 
redemptions. When you see brokenness, sin, failure, judgment, the wrath of God, etc., you can say that Jesus is the answer to that. He redeems it all. This is how we make sense of the book of Ecclesiastes, by the way. Anybody read that? Don't raise your hand. I won't embarrass you. You read Ecclesiastes and you just get frustrated and depressed. Until you realize that this is the state of the world without Christ. It is endless cycles of meaninglessness, hopelessness, never-ending, no purpose, no point. It is depressing without Jesus, right? And those who deny that are in denial, right? Those are ridiculous. Those are just several ways to see Jesus in the Old Testament. So I want to encourage you this morning. I want to do the opposite of what some are doing and encourage you to hitch your Christianity to the Old Testament. Jump in there and work it out. Go for the hardest, most boring place in the Old Testament you can find. Jump in there. Be frustrated for decades. Go for it. Ask hard questions. Find the most controversial thing that makes you the maddest in the Old Testament. That makes you just want to stomp around and cry and have a tantrum. and Dive into it and ask hard questions. I trust it. I trust what it says. You know, I've always believed all this stuff on some level. My pastor growing up taught the same stuff all the time. He's sitting over there. <laughs> he did. But when I started teaching this, when I became a pastor 12 years ago, when I was 41, <laughs> kidding. When I started teaching it and seeing that it applied to people's lives in a real crisis, It's one thing to kind of be in a good place and go, yeah, I trust the Bible. trust what God says. I trust that he's faithful. It's another thing when your life or your emotions and your soul are teetering in the balance and things are falling apart. And then you lean on it. And you find that it's a sure place. That it really is true in all that it claims. Then something happens to you. And you stop skirting and avoiding difficult things that you find in the Bible. And instead you go, okay, all right, let's press into that because this is God's word. Even this is God's word. What am I going to do with it? The goal of which is to be able to have your heart burn within you like they did for those disciples as Jesus taught them on the road. That's all I ever want to happen. When I stand up here, I want Jesus to speak through his word, and I want your hearts to burn within you because Jesus has taught you about himself through the scriptures. And that's all I want for you to experience when you read it, is to not treat it like a text or like an ancient document or like an intellectual exercise, but actually have the goal of communion with Christ, to walk along the road with Christ. And for maybe for miles or decades, you're like, where is Jesus? Where is he? I'm talking to this guy, but I don't even know where Jesus is. And all of a sudden, poof. Oh, there it is. 
I knew there was something about Jacob and Esau and that whole thing. I knew there was something there, and then somebody says something, and the lights come on. Jesus appears, oh, and then he's gone. On to the next mystery, right? If Scripture is authoritative because it's an expression of the authority of Jesus, then perhaps our lack of desire to read his word is rooted in a lack of hunger for Jesus. And that's why I want to pray this morning. Because instead of trying to twist your arm into reading the Bible more, which I'm happy to do, I've done before, I'm not against it really. But maybe that's a symptom, right? Maybe it's a symptom of just not having a hunger for God, because I think if we had a real hunger for Jesus, we would go to what he says, and we wouldn't treat it like an exercise. We would treat it like those disciples did, hearing from him that he would teach you through the Holy Spirit the scriptures about himself. Amen? So why don't we stand up together, and I'm going to pray for that specifically. Why don't we start with just a a few moments of just silence, and I want you to, if you recognize a kind of um, a lack of hunger, well, I guess we could all be more hungry, right? If you just recognize that, I just want to take a minute to confess it to God and just ask him to change it, and then I'm going to pray for us. Just be honest with God. Lord, we thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for all the things you've said and all the things you've done over history. God, I thank you that even history itself is the story of you, the story of redemption. It's not the story of mankind and its greatness. It's the story of you and your greatness. And I thank you for giving us and preserving the scripture that it would be here living and active. And God, we receive it from you as your word. And God, I ask you to, by your spirit now, that you would stir up a new hunger in us for you. Not just for study or reading or even quiet time, but our desire, our driving uh, energy and motivation would be to know you more, to hear your voice. And God, that, that desire, that hunger would drive us deeper into your word. God, help us to be people that don't offend easily. God, I pray for those of us who have been frustrated with the Bible, frustrated with especially the Old Testament. God, I pray that you would meet us there. Meet them there. Reveal yourself there. Help them to see you in those scriptures. 
God, I pray for the body of Christ in this country and then, God, really in the world, especially in this nation where your word is constantly under attack and now it's just infecting the heart of the church. God, I pray that you would prove your word to be true. God, that you would anoint the preaching of your word in your church. God, that you would anoint the reading of your word in your church. God, we do not grant you authority. We recognize it. And I ask you to come and stand as Lord and King over your church and that you would speak through your word. God, that our hearts would burn within us. God, that we would know you more, know you better. God, that our hearts would be stirred even right now. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and make us hungry. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.